Second Timothy chapter three this morning. Father, it is with, um, it, it would be a total understatement to say it's miraculous what we're doing. It really is. Lord, that we have this book, which is far more than a book in front of us, the word of God. And I pray, Lord God, we would come at the Bible this morning with a, a respect and an awe factor. And Lord, an anticipation that, Lord, you want to speak to our hearts today. And Father God, that you'd be able to just not only help us intellectually understand what's being said, but spiritually make application in our lives. Do what only you can do by your Holy Spirit. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if the president, well, some of you may not do this, but if the president or somebody else you respect or something came into a room and and they were going to speak to you, maybe the CEO of your company or whatever, and somebody you respected a lot, you would probably grab a notebook and you'd probably say, you know what, I want to listen to what this person has to say. I'm expecting them to say something important. Guys, I hope we come to the Bible every time, with the, times a thousand, that we would be like, God is going to speak to me through the word of God. Amen? God wants to speak to you today. God wants to speak to you every time you open the Bible. Sometimes it's real obvious. Sometimes it's like, whoa, and just we, we feel it, we sense it. Other times we just read it, and quite frankly, we go back and read it three more times and still don't know what the heck it said. There's those times, but guys, I am telling you, we need, you need, we need to always come to the Bible with a healthy anticipation because this is like no other book. Amen? And I'm not saying that because I'm about to teach it. I don't care who's teaching it, what setting it's in. When you open your Bible, whether it's you with your coffee in the morning before the day gets started or a Bible study, get ready to receive from God. Amen? We cannot come with a lackadaisical view of God's word. That's so, so important. So I'm not accusing you of that. I'm kind of stimulating my own heart. Sometimes I just forget how miraculous this thing is that we're holding in our hands. It's unbelievable. Well, we are in 2 Timothy, which is the second letter that the great apostle Paul wrote at the end of his life. And it would take way too much time this morning to recap all of who Paul is and what Paul has done, but suffice it to say that he was a key figure in the early church, that God used an apostle, literally commissioned by Jesus himself to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He, he started numerous churches. He took the gospel into Europe. God used this man in an incredible way, not the least of which was to write at least 13 books of the Bible. <laughs> That's amazing. And so Paul, this Paul, that Paul, is at the end of his life, and he's sitting in a very dark, wet, cold uh, Roman dungeon, knowing full well that he's about to die. He's going to die by the hands of the Romans who will cut his head off not too far after he wrote this book. And he's writing, as you probably know by now if you've been with us, and if you haven't, this is for the sake of you that maybe haven't been tracking with us or maybe have forgotten or never knew, He's writing to a young, younger pastor named Timothy, probably about in his late 30s, 40 years old, somewhere in there, who Paul has had with him for a lot of years. These guys loved each other. They were, they were not just co-laborers, missionaries like that. They were like father-son relationship, you know, super close. And so when Paul um, got out of jail the first time, they went off and did more work. He ends up leaving Timothy in Ephesus where he's overseeing a great work, um, but there's a lot of trouble on the horizon as well. And Paul really sees the handwriting on the wall, not only that his life is about to end, but he sees what Timothy's facing. 
And he sees the challenges that are before this young guy. He sees them from without. He sees them from within. He looks at the, the Roman culture, how, how Nero now blaming Christians for the burning of Rome and all these things and how persecution is ramping up direct, legalized, from the top-down governmental persecution of people who just are believers in Jesus. And nothing's really changed around the world. I mean, that still is a very real part of, of what it means to be a Christian for a lot of the world. And they're being persecuted and hurt in that way. But also there's attacks from within in that the enemy of our soul, Satan, um, is using men and women kind of on the inside, the old, if you can't beat them, what? Join them mentality. And he's kind of using false teaching and things like that to destabilize and and kind of undo some of the solid doctrine that Paul and the other guys had laid down. And Timothy's facing this stuff, and it's a real challenge. And so really, 2 Timothy was written to encourage Timothy. That, that's what, if you had to just kind of put down in one sentence what this book is about, that might be a good sentence. You know, he's writing to encourage Timothy. Um, and we get to chapter 3, and I'm going to take it in two chunks. For your notes, I would jot down this. The first chunk is the first nine verses. Number one, evil days, evil people, steer clear. He's going to describe evil days, evil people, and the imperative that is there is in verse 5 where he says, avoid such people. That's really the instruction he's giving. We'll, we'll get to that, but if you're just kind of wanting some broad stroke ideas of what the chapter is about. Evil days, evil people, avoid them. The second chunk, verses 10 through 17, um, is Paul's ministry as an example. He's contrasting. He's, gonna, he's, he's using his, his, his ministry as a good example for Timothy. And then the imperative there is, he says in verse 14, continue in the things you've learned. So avoid these people, continue in the good stuff. If you had to just kind of broad stroke the whole chapter. So let's go back. And what I want to do is kind of work through this. I'm, I'm going to fight real hard not to take up a lot of uh, unnecessary time. Um, the, the bummer thing about this chapter is it warrants at least three or four Sundays. <laughs> but I'm going to try to just be a good boy. And get to the end, because I want to circle back to a statement that is almost unnoticeable at first, that, that really I feel is kind of the heartbeat of what the Lord put on my heart this morning. But all of it's good. Let's get into it. Chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, which means like puffed up. Arrogant, which means to kind of set yourself apart from others. Abusive. Disobedient to parents. Isn't that interesting that that made the list? Right in the middle, towards the top, actually. Ungrateful. Unholy. Heartless. Unappeasable, meaning you're just not willing to reconcile or take a wrong. Slanderous. The Greek word there is diablos means the word devil, means to be a liar because that's what he is. Without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I mean, it, we could easily go down that list and, and take the time, and I have in the past, and, and it, it is good to just kind of take those words and think about them and go through them. But, but let's just kind of start from the beginning. He says, understand this, Timothy. He says, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. 
couple things I want to point out about that verse. First of all, he says, in the last days. There's all, you know, a lot of times people are confused. You'll hear this a lot in Christian circles. Are we in the last days? We're in the last days. Oh, in the last days, last days. You guys ever hear that? And you ever just honestly think for, your second, for a second and say, what is the last days? What does that mean? Um, technically speaking, this may be helpful to you. And I'm going to reference um, Acts chapter 2 if you want to go there. You don't have to. But um, technically speaking, at least get this down or maybe jot it down if you're into Bible study stuff. The last days technically refers to the day of, from the day of Pentecost, which was the birth of the church when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church and the, birth, the church was birthed. And it carries through to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And, and here's why I say that. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, and you'll remember, and I have to just reference these things if you're not familiar with them. Forgive me if we're not developing all this, but I'll just kind of reference you. You can go back and read it. But in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church, and do you guys remember what happened after that? They were speaking in tongues, and there was this big commotion. Thousands of people were there for the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, Peter gets up to preach. They were accusing them of being what? Drunk. Here's what Peter's response was. He says, they're not drunk. He says, this is what was um, uttered through the prophet Joel. And he's now citing the Old Testament prophet of Joel. In the last days that shall be that God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He says, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And he goes on. But at the end of that quotation, verse 20, uh, verse 20, it says, uh, and the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent or terrible day of the Lord. So he talks about this time of the outpouring of the spirit, but he also talks about time of like judgment coming down. How do you reconcile those? Well, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, day of Pentecost. But when Jesus comes back, keep in mind, we talk about, oh, I can't wait for the return of Jesus. Yes, I agree. But remember what we're talking about. We're talking about first the rapture of the church. And then we're talking about a time of tribulation on the earth. At the end of that tribulation, Jesus coming back to this earth where Revelation 19 says he will lay waste to the nations that have rebelled against him, to the Antichrist. It's going to be, start with a day of blood and a day of judgment as he establishes his throne there in Jerusalem. And it will end in glory. Amen? All that's technically last days. So back to this. Are we living in the last days? Heck yes, we are. But I think what people generally mean by that is, that we're living in the, like, the last, 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 last days. Like, and you say that because, and that's not the intention of this study, but um, when you start looking at the prophecies that um, the Bible gives us that talk about the, the climate, uh, whether geopolitically or socially or morally or any of that, prior to the return of Christ, man, you can't help but come to that conclusion that we're like in the final of the last days. Maybe that's a good way of saying it. Um, we're in October, the playoffs, if you would. Anyways, uh, back to Second uh, Timothy chapter 2. He, he then says, um, understand that in the last days, um, there will come times of difficulty. And, and I like the word come there. It actually means there, it, to settle in. There's going to there's gonna be an up-ramping in these things. It's going to settle in. It's always been, but it's going to settle in. And, and he says there will be times of difficulty. Does somebody else have a different translation for the word difficulty? I, I remember the King James says perilous times anybody else no well lucky for you i actually wrote some down so i don't really need you anyway um difficult me hard outrageous violent savage probably the best one is fierce in fact this greek word is only used one other place in the new testament 
Matthew uses it in Matthew 8, verse 28, describing the demon-possessed man in the tombs who would break chains and cut himself. It says that he was so fierce, none could pass that way. And it just describes there's going to be a fierceness, a savageness, a, uh, an outrageousness to the culture in the last days. No doubt, by the way, he's, he's already describing what Rome was like. But it's definitely our culture as well. And then he gives this list. And, and what's on the top of the list was what? People will be lovers of themselves. They will love themselves. And I don't think it's by any accident that that's at the top of the list. And as I said, you could go through the list. I I kind of expanded on a few of those words. There's lots of synonyms that help us understand that. But he's talking about people, their whole life, their whole, everything will revolve around self. And in my opinion, the whole rest of that list really is just describing that first point. Arrogant slanderous, um, lovers of, of money, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, I'm always right. Everything comes, and, and it's this idea that everything is about me. Everything is run through the grid of how does this affect me and my life and how I'm living and how I feel. It's a narcissistic type mentality. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that, guys, you know, in the, in the culture we live in, is is that not easy to see? Hasn't that kind of set in? Not, it's always been there, but, but it's like set in. It's like that's just the way we think. And, and you know what? As I read that list, you know what I thought that really describes? Me. Apart from Jesus. You know, you might look at that list and go, gosh, the end times. I can, people are going to be like this. Can I just remind us that that's what's in you? And that's what's already in me? And as I read this list, I'm not shocked by any of those because every single one of those is, is me, apart from Jesus Christ. I'm a lover of self. I'm a self-idolater. The greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, your mind, and your strength, and to love your neighbors yourself. And you won't love your neighbors yourself unless you're loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So what do we do as people if we reject worshiping God and making him the the, the central part and the love of our, our hearts and lives and everything to please him. And it's all about him. Life, in fact, we're born in this spiritually dead condition where life's about us. Life's about me. I'm God. We would never say those words, but that's exactly what we're communicating. We're, we're basically saying, I love me with all my heart, mind, and soul, and I love me. It's the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I, right? That's That's what... I am. That's, I don't mean to be offensive, but that's what you are. That's what we all are. This is the human condition. Though those things are going to become more evident is the idea of what he's saying. But this is the human condition. And what this reminded me of in a very simple way, and I'm sure there's lots of different ways to attack this and look at it and examine it. But the way that I just wanted to look at it this morning briefly is that, you know, this just reminded me that this is why I needed a new heart. Amen? This is why you need a new heart. Because this is what is you. This is who you are apart from Jesus. That's why Christianity is not do better, try harder, stop smoking maybe, or stop sleeping around if you quit doing drugs. and like Those are great things. But being moral on the outside does not make you a Christian. You need a new heart. You got to be born again because these things are ingrained into your very being. And you know what? You may, oh, people like that. You know what? Given the right context that's you expressing that 
That's me expressing that. I have come to believe that there's no sin I couldn't do given the right circumstances, given to myself, with my eyes off of God. That's why I'm so glad that Jesus came and gave me a new heart. That's why Jesus said, you've got to be born again because, you, guys, Jesus is not interested in fixing you up. He's interested in giving you a new heart, a new life. You've got to be born again. You can't just refurbish the old. You've got to become new. Don't answer this out loud, but are you born again? Are you born again? If you're not, you're not a Christian. But I was raised in the Catholic Church. I was raised in the Baptist Church. That doesn't matter. Your heart is evil and wicked. And you're a self-idolater. And apart from a brand new heart being put in you by Jesus, by the birth of his spirit coming into your life, you will go to hell for eternity. And that's not Jason's opinion. That's what the Bible says. You need a new heart. I need a new heart. So I praise God. When I just hit me when we were worshiping this morning and Zach was singing that song about, you know, that you're stronger. You're stronger and you saved me. And I just began to tear up. You, God saved me from this. And he wants to save you from this. Amen. But then again, he's, he's describing the culture. He's describing all that. The last one on the list, though, he goes off on in verse 5. And he goes on to say, having, he's actually still doing the list. I actually just stopped short of it. Verse 5, he says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. That's, it's almost like he saved the worst one, like uh, just the self-life. He's like, and the, the crudest, grossest, gnarliest one of all is religiousness. Saying, having like a semblance of piety, a semblance of, of looking holy, a semblance of being moral, the semblance of being righteous before God. But denying, that means, means purposely denouncing the power to make you that. In other words, you're, you're more interested in the appearance of that, but you have little to no interest of actually being transformed and having that power of God make you new. Does that make sense? Maybe I'm just, for my own personal reasons, I'm just aware of this a little more this morning of how much our country, our world really needs not religion. We need Jesus to transform our lives. And, you know, you go back to Isaiah 1 where here they are doing all of their religious duties in in the the context of uh Israel and Judah, literally bringing sacrifices. And, and you would think from the naked eye looking at, wow, look at these guys are so holy. He says, God in essence says, don't bring those to me. They're gross to me. I don't want them. I don't want your stupid, heartless, religious, outward activity. I want your heart. He would say to the Pharisees, and guys, we, we always poo-poo the Pharisees. Oh, fair. We kind of say it like that, Pharisees. They were looked at by everybody else as like, that's what a godly person must look like. And for a lot of them, they really were. They loved God with all their heart. There was a lot of them that they were like, Jesus called them whitewashed what? Tombs. They look really good on the outside and they're dead on the end. They're full of dead men's bones. Well, he goes on to say in verse 5, Avoid such people. (laughs) Shun them. And then he says something 
Admittedly, a little rough to translate here. He says, for some of them, for among them, rather, are those who creep into, and the idea is kind of like slither into households and capture weak women. Other translations say weak-minded women who are burdened with sin and led astray by their various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men are also opposed the truth. Men corrupt in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will know they will not get very far because uh, their folly will be plain to all, uh, as was those two men. Uh, you look at that and you're like, what, did he, what was he just talking about? He's talking about these men who are like religious and he's thinking, I'm sure he's thinking about what's going on in Ephesus and how there's these guys that are looking the part and they're coming in and they're looking very holy, but they've got ulterior motives. They want people to follow them. They've got these false doctrines. He says, avoid those people. That's kind of been a, a thread through this if you haven't been tracking through it. And then he gives this example, probably something that was happening there in Ephesus. He says, these are those guys that will slither their way into the homes of these weak-minded women. Now, Paul's not being like a male chauvinist pig. He's just saying, look, what he's painting the picture of here is these guys were taking advantage of people. And here's these ladies, or he gives that example that maybe um, are at home. They don't have the covering of their husband or whatever. Maybe there's this, this... sincerity in them or whatever, but they're getting in the door, so to speak, and they're, they're taking advantage of their guilty conscience or whatever it was, and they're, they're just kind of giving them these truths, and they're slithering their way into these places, and they're taking advantage of people. That was the idea. And he's like, stay away from those people. And then he compares them, and he names them here. I, I, this is fascinating to me, actually. Jambres, uh, Jan, Janice and Jambres, don't, don't name your kids that, um, this is a reference to Exodus chapter 7. You guys remember this? When Moses first comes on the scene with Pharaoh and he has those signs and he like throws down the staff and it turns into a snake and they like throw down their staff and it turns into a snake too. I wonder what Moses felt like when that saw that. Like, check this out, Pharaoh. <laughs> and they're like, whatever. And they did the same thing. But then, guys, remember what happened? Like Moses' snake like ate their snake. Anyway, um, those two guys were like keeping up with Moses. If you go back and read that, they were like kind of replicating some of the signs that Moses was doing. But there came a point where those guys were like, this is God because we can never do this. And the idea of what Paul is saying is these guys, their run will come to an end. And the truth will come out. And, and it, the, the truth is going to be exposed about these guys. He avoid these guys. That's really, in essence, what he's saying. I'm going to leave it to you to do a little bit more work on that if you want. Verse 10, the second section. Now, Paul kind of contrasts that after talking about the evil days and the evil people and for him to avoid those people. He says now in verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching and my conduct and my aim in life, my, um, my uh, excuse me, I lost my place, my faith, my patience, my love, uh, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch, at uh, Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So there's a lot there. Um, what he does in verse 10 and 11, I circled it in my Bible. He uses the word my a lot. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love. And at first read, you might read that and say, man, Paul's like really stuck on himself. Talk about self-love here. Me, my, me, 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 me. Paul's not being conceited here. What Paul's doing is saying, look, Timothy, you're well aware of, you have followed, you have seen, you have, you have 
taken note of the way I have handled myself. And I'm wanting you to follow in my footsteps is in essence what he's saying. Several times in the New Testament, Paul, what does he say? Imitate me as I what? Imitate Christ. Do what I do, Timothy. And he's, he's saying, look, compare the way I'm acting with the way these dudes are acting. And you follow my good example. And, and then he kind of points out an interesting thing, which he says, which I've been persecuted for. And these guys who are running their mouth, the idea is, is they're not going to stand up to persecution. They're going to fade out. They'll continue to deceive themselves and deceive others. But I was persecuted for my faith. And then he throws that verse that we all kind of want to take a, a Sharpie and just kind of scratch it out. It says that everybody, here's a promise for your, just to start your day with, write it on your fridge. Everyone who wants to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Wow, that's heavy. But that's, it's a true statement, amen? I mean, to some degree. It's not all health, wealth, and prosperity, and you're never broken, never sick. Nope, that might fly on TV. It just doesn't fly in reality with what the Bible says. The Bible says you're going to live for Jesus. Oh, goodness and mercy, yes, that will follow you, but so will persecution. <laughs> There'll be hard times. And then Paul cites some examples. I won't go through all of them, but the one at Lystra, guys, that's when he got rocks thrown at his head <laughs> until they thought he was dead, and they dragged his limp, seemingly, if not really, dead body out of the city and left him there, and he revived. Ends up, by the way, going back into the city to preach the gospel. The guy was unstoppable. But in essence, all that he's saying there is he's saying, look, compare my ministry with these guys and, man, follow after what I'm doing. Then in verse 14, he says in verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from, a ch- and from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I love that. He, you guys catch what he's saying here? I'm, I'm not trying to bore you. I'm just trying to, let's make sure we understand the chapter. He's saying, look what he says. He says, um, continue. That means keep going in what you've learned and what you believe and knowing from whom you've, you've been taught. Think about, you ever heard the, the phrase like, you know, what's your resource on that? You hear some juicy tidbit of news. You're like, yeah, where'd you hear that from so-and-so? Oh, not true then. But I read it on Facebook. It's got to be true. Um, but check your sources. He says, look, look at my lifestyle. Remember what I've taught. Think about and think about who I am, my track record. And then he like says, and even think about how you learned the scriptures since you were a child. Remember in chapter one when he, he just references like Eunice and um, what was the other lady's name? Eunice and Lois, yeah, grandma and grand, grandma and mom, and how they were just like the, the godly influence in his life. Evidently, from the time um, he was just a little guy, they were feeding him the word of God, feeding him the word of God, feeding him the word of God. And he says, since you were, since your childhood, you are acquainted with, you're familiar with the Bible because of your, your upbringing. Think about that. Think about me and how I've encouraged you and continue in those things. Amen? By the way, a little aside, I've been, as you, I've mentioned a couple of times for some reason, on Sunday mornings, I've just been reading through uh, the Old Testament in my personal time, and I'm reading through Deuteronomy, and I love, that's such a classic chapter in verse in chapter 6, uh, the great Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and he goes on and he talks about how they're to take the law, the Jewish dads and moms were to take the law, and they were to, you know, write it on, the, you know, um, just have it everywhere. It says, you'll, you'll speak of these things as you lay down, as you sit, sit as you 
walk through the way as you come in and they were like to put the scriptures on the wall. Are you guys tracking with me on that? I'm butchering the quote. But the idea was is when you get up, you go to bed, when you eat, when you go to a room, they always had the scriptures, always have the scriptures, always had the scriptures, familiarizing their kids with what the Bible says. And I love that because when I was a young parent, I'm an old parent now, <laughs> when I was a young parent, I would hear, I would hear, it was foreign to me, but I'd hear people talk about family devotions. You guys, family, yes, no? Family altar time, family devotions. And I was like, how do you do that? And I can just remember times, literally, like gathering my kids as young toddlers and just over toddler. And I'm like, okay, families are supposed to do this. And we're a Christian family, so we're going to do this. I didn't say that to them, but that's what I'm thinking. Like, I want to raise you guys right. You got to know the Bible, so sit down and sit up. Stop. And we're going to get into, sit down. And we're going to get into the Bible. And guys, I was in the Bible today. I was in, sit down. And then, stop it! You know, pretty soon I'm like, it's just mayhem. I'm pulling my hair out. I'm like, so love God with all your heart. Go to bed! You know, maybe not quite like that. Maybe a little bit like that, though. And I, and I had this vision in my mind of like my kids sitting there with their heads tilted, taking notes while I'm teaching them and expounding to them, to these eight-year-olds, you know, the word of God or whatever. And I just remember being so frustrated. How do you do family devotions? How do you... And I actually asked a, a pastor friend of mine's daughter, hey, what'd your dad do? When you were... And I just spied and just totally stalked this. Anyway, but you know, it just opened my eyes. You know, she, would, she said, you know, he was just the same in the pulpit or is at home and just talk about the Bible and... And I just remember it just lifted so much weight off of my shoulders, just, just kind of the Deuteronomy 6 version of that. I'm just saying this for the benefit of moms and dads just trying to figure out family devotions. Hey, pray about it. Come up with your own way. I know for us, I just took the pressure way off. And I would just, while we're sitting and eating, because I had them captivated, eating like, hey, let me tell you something that God showed me in the Bible today. Three verses, done, boom, back to eating. Or, hey, let's pray together. Let's all pray one thing you're thankful for. And just go around, done. In, get in, get out. Get in and get out, right, moms and dads? When they're young, get in and get out. You can grow on the time thing later. I remember as we got older, I'd say, okay, in five minutes, I want everybody on my bed, and we're going to pray before we go to bed. Oh, I don't want to. Five minutes, you know, and three minutes. Nobody's moving yet. Nine seconds, get in here, whatever. We come in, and we just, 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 all I'm saying, guys, is keep it simple. Just keep it simple. Moms, write scriptures on cards and post them on the fridge and dads you know tucking your kids into bed say some scripture to them talk about the bible hey you know what blessed me today in the bible i was reading about this and you, you don't have to make it complicated it's just a part of everyday language who we are what we do amen i definitely did not get that right all the time you know i, I figured i figured out a few things at the end hopefully i didn't screw them up too bad in the meantime but they're doing pretty well by god's grace where was i in this Oh, yeah, I started talking about how Timothy was acquainted with the, the sacred writings uh, from the time he was a child. And then he says in verse 16 and 17, worthy of underlining or at least noting. Great, great scripture. I wish we could spend a little more time on it. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof. That's like rebuking when you're, you're in sin. For correction, that means like you're not necessarily in sin, you're just going the wrong direction. Oh, you need a little correction. For training in righteousness so that the man of God or the woman of God may be competent. I don't really like that word just because in English it kind of brings up a different vibe. It really just means complete, fully equipped for every good work. Amen? Why do I need to read the Bible? Now, we talked a little bit about this last week, so I don't feel a need to go into it too much. Uh, but, but I don't think you could overstate this. 
how important it is for us to know the word of God, to be in the word of God. He says, the, the word of God, it is profitable for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, for training, for, to equip you so that you can be fully equipped to do every good work that God has preordained for you to walk in. Amen. I kind of look at that from the negative, and, I, and, and here's why. Not that I'm just trying to be negative, but I look at it from this way. If I don't have the word of God in me, I'm not going to be fully equipped for the work that God wants me to do. I'm not going to be able to teach. I'm not going to be able to rebuke or, or correct. I'm not, going to ha- I'm not going to have my own life being able to be corrected or rebuked or taught if the word of God's not coming into me, much less me doing it with somebody else. How am I going to disciple somebody else if, if I'm not in the Bible letting the Holy Spirit disciple me through his word, right? And so I can't, I can't overstate how important this is that we are in the Bible and the Bible is in us constantly, daily, reading, taking in. And again, I talked so much about this last week. I won't beat a dead horse. I do like, by the way, in verse 16, I think from the, I used to read the King James Version a lot, and it's good. There's nothing wrong at all with that. He says, uh, it would say that all scripture is inspired by God. Some translation of that word inspired. Anybody here have that one? It's not bad. It's not a bad translation, but it kind of sometimes leaves you with the wrong impression because people will think, oh, the Bible... Uh, they were inspired to read it like God gave them a list, a little whirl of inspiration and they wrote something good down. That's not what that means. Nor does it mean that every time I read it, I just need to be inspired. That word inspired, and I, I wrote the word down. It, I mean, it didn't mean anything to me until I read it and I'll give it to you. It literally is. Let's see if I can find it. No, I guess I didn't actually get the Greek word, but um, it's a compound word that literally means God breathed. The scriptures are God-breathed. They are the word of God. Now, it gets complicated, and it gets, you can, you can go, and it's a fascinating study to study, and I encourage you to do so. I am personally just reading a book I picked off my shelf about three, four weeks ago called um, Seven Reasons Why You Can Trust Your Bible. I'm going to read a quote out of there in a second. But, guys, you need to understand something, that God didn't inspire in the sense of like, oh, I feel so like inspiration to write something good. No, he breathed his word. Well, people will often say, do you hear this? The Bible is just written by men. Anyone ever heard that? Yes, it, ha- it was. It was because God used men to write what he wanted down. There's this idea of dual authorship. And what's beautiful about the word of God is that God was the actual, the Holy Spirit's the actual author, but he used men with their styles, with their personalities, with those things. And God used that and he expressed his word through those men. Amen? Think about it. You have dictation. You have where God says, I want you to say this. The Ten Commandments would be a good example of that. You have narration, you have poetry, you have all these things that God used and and they were God-breathed. They originated with God through the pens of men written down on parchment for us. Amen? The word of God is inerrant. That means in its message, it is absolutely without error. Are there variances in translation? This is where you can get real off, off the things and it's a great study. Study it. Yes, but there's no error in the message what? so ever. The Bible is inspired. The Bible is inerrant. And because it's the word of God, the Bible is authoritative. That means the Bible has to be the last word. It is truth. 
It's not, well, I don't really agree with that or I don't feel this. Again, we live in a post-truth culture right now where how we feel trumps what's actually true. But I'm sorry, that will come and go. And what will remain is truth. And God's authoritative truth is revealed in his word. And I, I, I am not a scholar on these things. I'm, that's why I'm reading more and more about it and familiarizing myself personally with manuscripts and, and translations and things like that. But, but I, I will say this. Do your worst to try and undo this Bible. And guess who's going to win? The Bible. The, the best critics in the world over time have tried to dismantle this thing. And it is an iron anvil that will not be cracked, right? Listen to this. I love this quote. I came across this. It's a long quote, so just bear with me if you don't mind. But I just love this, and then I'll get on to the sermon. Um, this is a quote from Robert Chapman. He says, it's a long quote, but listen. This book, he's talking about the Bible, not this book. This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts binding. Its histories are true and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword and the Christian's charter. Here paradise is restored, heaven opened, the gates of hell closed. Christ is its grand subject. Our good is its design and the glory of God its end. It should, be fill, it should fill the memory, test the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It has given you life. It will, open, it will be opened at judgment and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, rewards, and the greatest labor and condemns all who trifle with its sacred contents. Amen. Again, that was Robert Chapman, a great quote. I can give it to you later if you want it. Well, amen and amen, and that's where he leaves that chapter. But what I'd like to do this morning is just quickly circle back to a, a, not even a full sentence, but just a phrase out of verse 10. And this is something that just kind of struck me, kind of popped. You ever read the Bible and just something pops? And I'm, I'm literally driving home from PDX last night. Like I said, I was visiting my dad. And this just flooded my head. And I just began to pray about it and think about it. It's in verse 10 where Paul, we already know the context, right? Paul is saying, hey, look, this is how these guys were. You know how I lived. This was my example. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. Can we pause there? Just stop. He says, Timothy, you remember, you watched, you saw my aim in life. I like that phrase. It's also translated my purpose. Paul's life had a purpose. Paul's life had an aim. Let me put it this way. Paul's life was not aimless. Paul's life was not purposeless. And this is what is just on my heart. Do you know your purpose? Just think, don't answer out loud. Just think, do you know your purpose? 
What is your aim in life? There are so many walking around, and it's not unique to our generation or this time in world history. It is the question that is on the heart and soul of every soul. What is my purpose? And we can bury that question deep. And we have maybe a generation on the outside that looks like they're not interested in asking those hard questions, but there's going to come a time when that is going to surface and you're going to have to deal with this question. Why am I here? What is my aim? What is the purpose of my life? Does my life, there's the old saying, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. God doesn't want us to have aimless lives. Now, I'm not talking about your career choices, your education. Those are great goals. Those are great things. And, and, and it's good to have goals and it's good to have aims and it's good to have, you know, I want to do this career. I want to be married or I want to travel there. I want to do this. It's great to have those. I'm not talking about aimlessness in that way. Maybe you're like, well, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to school and I'm going to get this career. I'm going to live in this house. I'm going to do Fine. If you have those goals, that's great. But if you think that's your purpose, then you're, you're going to wake up one day and you're going to realize you've missed your purpose. Because those things are fine, but you've got to have in place first and foremost why you're here. And it is the question on the heart and soul of every soul, I believe. Some ask it quickly, some put it off. So do you know your purpose? Why are you here? What's my purpose for living? Why do people commit suicide? Among other reasons. There's no per- What's the point of all this? What, why am I, what, what am I living for? Is it really all about just waking up, going to sleep, waking up, going to work, making money, buying stuff, being in debt, paying off debt, going to work, getting up, buy a car, an extra car, trade the car, get a new car? Is that what life's all about? Well, I made it to the top. I am at the top of my company. That's great. It really is great. I mean, that, that is an awesome thing in its right context. That's great. Yes, awesome. But I hope that's not what you're living for. There's nothing wrong with that. None of those things are bad in and of themselves. Hear me on that. But that can't be your purpose. That can't be your purpose in life. Which begs the question, what was Paul's aim in life? I want to give you three things that are not unique to Paul. And I would even venture, if I could be so bold as to say this, Paul says so many times, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. These are the same things we can imitate. Jot them down. Get them down. Listen. If you're not jotting them down with pencil and pad, at least listen. Number one, these are not going to be like, oh, I've never heard that before. I'm going to give you three, at least three references. Philippians 1. Philippians 3, 1 Corinthians 9. I'll let you jot those down and so in case you don't have time to turn to them. Philippians 1, Philippians 3, and 1 Corinthians 9. Now, if you had to sum up what is, if Paul said, my aim in life, if you were to expand on that, I believe Paul would say this. You'd say, Paul, what is your aim in life? What is your purpose? I think he could sum it up in one word, Jesus. Here's why I say that. Philippians 1, 21 says, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. But let's expand on that a little bit. And I'm going to go to the verse right before that. I won't take the time to paint the picture, but I will say this. Paul is writing from a different prison cell. And he's talking and he's writing these things. And he says in verse 20, well, I'll back it up to verse 18. He says, yes, and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, it will turn to my deliverance. 
as it is my eager expectation and hope, and I will not be ashamed, but with full courage. Now listen, not now, as, but as now as always, listen, that Christ would be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do you catch that? I just want Christ to be honored in my body, whether I live or whether I die. Here's number one. I believe that Paul's aim, his purpose, he understood his purpose. It was to glorify God with his body. Amen? Revelation 4.10 says, All things were created by him and for his pleasure. You were created to bring glory to God with your body. Paul says at the end, at the beginning of Romans 12, after giving this amazing doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone, by faith alone, he says what? Now present your bodies as living sacrifices unto God, holy and acceptable to him. Amen? Jesus prayed, when he taught us to pray, he said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, what your will be done. In essence, he's saying, pray this, that your kingdom and your will be done where in my life. In all things. I want to live for your... See, does this go back to what we started talking about? Are you, are you suggesting life's not about my glory? Yes. Life's about bringing glory. Are you telling me I'm, my purpose is to bring God glory? Yes. The old Westminster Catechism, the question is posed, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man, the answer goes on to say, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You will never know your purpose in life until you understand that you were created not to live a life that is full of self-life, bringing yourself glory, living for you. But when you just lay down your life and surrender your life and say, I want, whether I live or die, however I live, I just want you to be, I want people to see Jesus in me. Amen. That's really living. Now you can do that in your job. You can do that on your sports team. You can do that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now those things that um, are good but not worth being the purpose of our life, they, be, they have purpose now when we're doing them for the glory of God. Are you guys tracking with me on that? This is, so listen, I'm not saying I've got this down pat, but I want my life to be a life that is, whether I die or whether I live, I want it to glorify God. I want my body to just be a body that's used for the glory of God. Amen? How, why would you, how do you get to that place? When you realize what Jesus has done for you, your natural tendency is just going to say, Lord, you gave everything for me. I lay down my life for you. I give myself completely and fully to you. Amen? Secondly, he not only lived for number one, first and foremost, to honor Jesus, but I believe also he lived, his purpose was to know Jesus. To know Jesus. And I would turn you to Philippians 3 at this point. It's a long section. In verse 7, he says, Whatever gain I had. Now, Paul, he was the rising star in his social circles. And he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, listen, I count everything as a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered loss of all things and I count them as dung in order that I may gain 
Christ and be found in him, having a righteousness not of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And I love verse 10. He says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his suffering and becoming like him in his death. Guys, I believe the heart of Paul was not only to honor Jesus, but to know Jesus. Do you catch that? He says, whatever I thought was gained to me, I chucked it aside for what? The surpassing worth of just knowing Jesus. He cries out, I want to know him. And the power of his resurrection, I believe that's a reference to that resurrection life we have in him. To be conformed, and I would maybe add like a sub point to this, not only knowing him, but becoming like him. Guys, Paul wanted to know Jesus. I would even say above serving Jesus, he just wanted to know Jesus. He wanted to, because listen, the more you see Jesus, the more you'll fall in love with Jesus and the more you're going to want to see Jesus. Amen? That's the passion of Paul and I want that to be the master passion. I'm learning this. I'm learn, I've, it seems like I've been learning it for about 25 years. That Jesus is all I need. That Jesus is all I honestly, when it boils down to it, I want. I think I want a bunch of other things. I think I need a bunch of other things. But at the end of the day, it's just Jesus. Just Jesus. Amen? Guys, just if it's not true in your life, that's cool. Just be real with it. Let me just ask you this. Is your master passion just to know Jesus? Just to, like, do you like count the time? I can't wait to get alone so I can go read my Bible and just go hang out with Jesus. Have you lost sight of that a little bit? I know I have. And I kind of go in, in waves, but, but I, I need to get back. I, I'm trying to rediscover that. Oh, Lord, just bring me back to where it's just, it's all about you, Lord. Just me and just you, just knowing you. I believe Paul, his aim, his purpose in life was A, he understood, I want my life to glorify God. My, my life's nothing if it's bringing glory to me. If it, if it glorifies God, it's worth living. Secondly, I want to know him. I want to know this God who saved me. I want to I want to sit at his feet. And thirdly, I want to make him known. And I, I would turn you to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 at this time. And there's, look at this. There's like a little chunk ripped out of my Bible, so I had to like fill it in because I don't know what the... I had to like look it up and fill it in because I ripped a bunch of the words off evidently. It says in verse 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jew I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, that I, though I'm not myself being under the law, that I might win those that are under the law. To those outside the law, Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Boy, that, that's worthy of a whole sermon. He, he basically says this, my life's not about myself and about getting my point across and my rights and all of this. He says, look, I humble myself and I just become all things to all men. He never compromised the law. He never compromised the gospel of grace. What he's saying is whatever I can do to just bridge that gap with no compromise and just bring them to Jesus. Does that make sense? By all means necessary. He had this laser focus, you guys. I want to honor Jesus. I want to know Jesus. And I want you to know Jesus. That was his purpose in life. And guys, I, I want to tell you right now, when that, when that right there becomes your purpose in life, 
you've got purpose in this life. Now, that can ca- you can carry that into whatever context God has put you in in your life. Mom, dad, worker, you know, sports team, coach, whatever, whatever it is, teacher. Like, if that's the driving purpose of your life, my gosh, all of a sudden now, those peripheral things that you're doing in this life, you're not necessarily living for those things, but now you're living, doing those things with a purpose. Amen? God doesn't want your life to be purposeless. I think that one of the reasons I, I'm on this today is because in my heart, as I was just thinking about this, praying about it, I sensed, and I could be wrong on this, I've been wrong before, but I just sensed that there might be some that are really struggling. You're here at church, but you're struggling with your purpose. Why am I here? What is this all about? Is this what it's all about? And I'm telling you, I believe the Lord is telling you that you're not going to find your purpose in this life by finding the right person to marry or if you could just get that job or if you could just be recognized or if you could just have whatever that thing is. There's always going to be that something that wants to try to swoop in and fill that void to make you think that this is the purpose. There's nothing wrong with those things. They're great in their context. They can't be the purpose for your existence. You were created for something much greater than that. God wants to bring you into his family. God wants to make you his child. God wants to forgive your sins and come in. And maybe you're already a Christian and you've had your your friends forgiven, your sins forgiven, both. Um, But you're still like kind of going on this roundabout, like, but what's my my purpose in life? It's still, it's Jesus. Circle back to Jesus. There's nothing more than Jesus. There's nothing more purposeful than living for the glory of Jesus. There's nothing more purposeful in my life than to knowing, spending my life getting to know Jesus and spending my life whatever it takes to get other people to know Jesus. You're not going to, that's purpose. Amen? But what about all these other goals I have? Well, whatever, work them out with, between you and the Lord, but don't make those goals and those things what you're living for. Make Jesus who you're living for. And those other things, they'll be put in their proper perspective. Elevate Jesus. Amen? I, I wonder if there's even some that are, that are contemplating suicide. I wonder if that's even a thing that's happening in the heart of some of our beloved brothers and sisters. Or maybe you're listening online. And the Lord would say to you tenderly, don't do it. Don't believe that lie. I've got purpose for your life. Amen? Who are we? Who are we that God would love us so much, you guys? It's crazy. Let's pray together. Let's bow our heads. First of all, if you're here today and you've never received Jesus as your Savior, because I've been talking to Christians for the most part, but if you're not a Christian today, we've already defined that. It doesn't mean you go to church. Have you been born again? Jesus said you cannot enter the kingdom. You can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. It means you have to be spiritually born. What's born of the flesh, body, that's physical. That's one thing. But you've got to be born of the Spirit. And if you can't say right now, I am a born-again Christian, then you're not a Christian. You've got to be born again. Those are Jesus' terms, Jesus' words. And I want to ask you this morning, would you like to become one? And as we saw, it's not what you have to do and how you have to clean yourself up. You've got to come just as you are, broken, helpless, and hopeless. And you say, Jesus, I can't save myself. I believe you died for my sins on the cross. I believe you raised from the dead. And I would just love to please receive the gift of salvation that you're giving me right now. 
If that's you, would you raise your hand? Our eyes are bowed, our heads are bowed, rather, our eyes are closed. But is there anyone here today that says, I need to know Jesus as my Savior. I want to be born again. Raise your hand up real quick so I can pray for you if you're here. Don't wait. Anyone? We got a room full of Christians. Anyone? Every person in here is born again. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Father God, I just pray right now. Thank you that, Lord, we have a room full of believers, but if there's anyone who didn't raise their hand and they still need you, Jesus, I pray, God, that they would cry out to you before this day is over. But, Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you've not only forgiven our sins, but we thank you, Lord God, that you've given us purpose in life. Lord, that we don't have to wander around like groping in the darkness. Why am I here? We know why we're here to glorify you, to know you, and to make you known. And I pray you'd restore that passion and that purpose and that aim in our lives this morning. Help us to make that the the guiding principles of our lives, Lord, as we go to work and school and all the rest. We want to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.